so uh, there is a very uh, distinct reason why we call uh, what we do on Sundays lot families and not small groups. Uh, a, because some of them aren't very small. Um, but B, more significantly, uh, because what we're doing on Sundays is, is we want to be on a journey to experience together healthy family. And the reality is uh, many of you, many of us, uh, in terms of our immediate family, have a pretty poor picture of what healthy family is. Uh, I think that some of you have been reluctant to, uh, to hang out with a lot family, uh, maybe in fear of being known. That man, if, if, like, if these people, if they, if they really knew me, like if I've got to answer questions or like if people are going to get up in my business, if I've got to be vulnerable or transparent, or like once, once people know me, uh, they'll do what maybe some of my other family members did. They'll, they'll, they'll abandon me. They'll call me a black sheep. I, I know that some of you are reluctant to be a part of lot families because you're fearful of being known. Uh, the blessing of what's happening is... Um, even in my law family this past Sunday, uh, six people in a row shared, uh, I would even say a few of which uh, have rarely shared. They opened up, they, they brought us into their life, they made themselves known in all the fear of being abandoned, in all the fear of being shunned, in all the fear of being judged, and instead all of that fear was met with unbridled love. I mean, like, stuff that, that if you would hear, uh, maybe, you know, in one-on-one, like, it would make you uncomfortable because you would be like, oh, oh, my goodness, like, I, I would have never known that you would have done that. And yet these people, their sin not coddled, but they were loved, pointed to Jesus, and, and actually brought near in the family. And so I just, like, looking out back, like, at the people walking around and the crazy displays of wildness that we saw back there and the, the, the like the Candy Canyon and, of course, uh, what I'm sure won, the Jurassic Park display, which happened to be my lot family. Um, uh, <laughs> I just like, I, I just want to encourage you guys. Um, you've been reluctant of be, in being known, and you haven't yet given a chance to be known and experience what love, even amidst your sin, feels like, knows like, is like. Um, so I just, I, I hope that for you tonight. Uh, because we are a family here, I'm going to approach uh, some things tonight like this is a, a family gathering. So I want to share some things about my family, if, if you don't mind. Uh, we're just now teaching my children uh, about giving, okay, about tithing. And um, we've just started the, uh, the old chore, you get quarters system, okay, in my house. Uh, my daughter didn't need that because she always serves anyway. Um, my sons need a good swift kick in the RC Cola. And so because of that, we, uh, we've, we've implemented the system. And so they do chores, they get a quarter, they don't do chores, they get quarters taken away. You know, it's, it's a pretty simple system, really. And so the first night, they were, they were talking like, all right, Daddy, like, how many quarters is it possible for us to get in one week? And so we're like calculating it up and carrying the one and stuff. And, and then, I, you know, $5.25, kids. That's what you guys can get in one week's time. And so, they're, I mean, they're all excited every night, excited to put the quarters in the jar. 
And, uh, and so on the last night, I, I brought home some envelopes, actually, from um, our, our joy box. And I said, all right, kids, here's what I want you to begin to pray through. Uh, none of this 525 is yours. Uh, it is all God's. He has, in His grace, shared it with you. You don't own this money. Uh, you, ha- you don't have rights to it. Even though, who's on the quarter? Even though, George, whatever is on the quarter, um, that didn't sound very assured. Like, he, even him, like, he, no one owns it. God owns it. And so what I want you to do is I want you to pray about how many quarters you would put in the envelope, and then on Wednesday you guys can bring those and put them in the joy box. And, uh, and so, man, I mean, they came out of the gate hot, okay? So, I mean, right away, like, no prayer, right? Maddox, my youngest son, he, he's like, Daddy, Daddy, I'm, I'm going to put five quarters in my envelope. And, you know, if you do the percentage, I mean, that's pretty strong, you know? And, and Avery's like, well, I'm going to do four. And, you know, Dawson's already spent all of his in his mind, so he's kind of... Um, so I'm like, hey, look, I don't want to know the answer. I just, I want you guys to think about it, pray about it. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to coach them even through what that means, discerning things. And, uh, and so uh, the next morning, uh, I, I see all my kids, and I'm, I can't wait to talk to them. You know, I'm like, all right, kids. You know, like, well, what did you guys decide, right? And so Avery stayed her course. You know, she's like, hey, I'm going to put in four. Because um, I, I had actually, anyway, no, I won't share that story. Anyway, she, she put in four. And... Uh, <laughs> And, and so th- I saw Maddox, and he was like, he was sad, you know, and I, I went over to him, I'm like, buddy, you know, what, what's a, what, are you all right, man? It's like, it's all okay? He's like, yeah, daddy. I was like, so how many quarters did you decide to, to get put in the joy box? And he's like, daddy, I'm going to put one in. And, and I was like, all right, son, you know, and I was trying not to be, you know, disappointed, but I was like, son, why are you only going to put one in? And he's like, dad, if I only put one in, then I can get a bigger toy, you know, and like in his mind, that was what it was all about, you know, like, hold on a second, do the math, if I put five in, that's a whole, like, that's a lot of quarters that aren't going to go towards what I want, right, and, and so I'm like, my son is unregenerate, okay, my son's, my, my, my five-year-old son's not a believer, okay, Maddox, he's like, he's awesome, and he's treacherous at the same time, but he does not know the Lord, so I don't, I don't expect him to understand that. But it proves how self-centered we are born in to this existence. It's unbelievable, right? Like, give him a little bit of time. And he comes out hot because he wants to win my approval. But then he starts thinking about it. He's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to give up that. I, if I give up four quarters, like, my Pokemon card stock goes way down, you know. So here's what I want to ask you. When was the time you were self-centered because of something you had when was the time that something that you had, a possession, identity, it created this consumeristic, uh, self-focused, overwhelmed heart? Uh, well, for me, and I know for many parents, um, it is this. Uh, one of my struggles, next slide, is, is these three fun kids. Okay, That's Maddox on the right, Dawson on the left. He looks like he's a zombie there with his hands up. And uh, my beautiful daughter, Avery. Like, every time I see my nine-year-old daughter, Avery, right now, I'm like, seriously, like, you need to get more ugly or something. You know what I'm saying? Because I, there's going to be some boys that will be dying. Okay. Um, 
<laughs> all in the, God's grace. Um, <laughs> listen, for me, it is so easy for these three awesome kids that I have to make me self-centered. I see a lot of parents do this. Um, they were missional, focused on serving Christ. All of a sudden, they get a kid, and everything turns inward. And they do it in the name of protecting or leading or shepherding their family. But really what happens is uh, kids become an excuse or a quicker means of self-consumption. And so like, no, 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 like now we need to bring in the reins. And, and the kids start running the show, the kids' pursuit of athletics, the kids' pursuit of this. Uh, uh, the, the Simba child now sits on the throne instead of the Lord Jesus. Like, I, I see it over and over and over. I mean, the, the, the same missional couple that were hardcore, uh, selfless living, all of a sudden now they get a kid and they recluse. Now, I know many of you guys don't have kids now, but you can be proactive in seeing this. Uh, for me, I hope and pray that kids are a means of mission. I've shared it many times before, like one of the best pieces of taking my kids to the park is they are a means of mission. Why? Because I'm like pushing my kid on the swing, and guess who's right here? Another parent pushing their kid on a swing, an opportunity for conversation. It happens. But I know many of you don't have kids. For some of you, maybe having this causes self-consumption. Uh, it's the, the idea of time. You're like, Mark, but I don't have any time. Uh, yeah, I hear that a lot. And I just, can I just call you, can, I, can we all have a moment right here? You're a liar, okay? I'm a liar. I'm just like, I just don't have any time. I'm just so overwhelmingly busy. Listen, you do what you want to do. And you're like, but, but Mark, no, I don't do what I want to do. Like, I have, a, I have a job. I have to go to my job. No, you don't. Like, not a one of you have to go to your job. But you're like, Mark, I'll be fired. Yeah, maybe. But you still do what you want to do, agree? Like, like we're, not, we're not forced into something. Like, but Mark, I, you, know, I, I, you know, I have to submit to the government and all, blah, blah, blah. I have to pay my taxes. No, you don't have to pay your taxes. You, right? Like, you don't have to. Mark, I have to go to the speed limit. No, you do not have to go to the speed limit. I am a living proof of that, okay? You do not. Lord, forgive me, right? <laughs> I have a, a buddy, true story. Uh, can I tell you guys, this is awesome. I have a buddy who literally never went the speed limit. Um, excuse me, always went the speed limit, okay? And it was so horrific to ride with him, right? Because like a normal like 15-minute trip became three hours, right? So true story. One time he's with me in the car, and we're getting on the interstate, and he's praying, true story, out loud for God to convict me of my speeding, okay? Okay? He's praying out loud. We're on, getting on the, on the on-ramp. This is not a lie. I look in my rearview mirror upon amen, and there is a cop car with his lights on. Literally, 100% true story. I was already off the ramp going 85 and a 65, you know. I'm like, oh, you're going to pray for me? I'm going to show you. Boom, copper, done. Like crazy, right? Okay. <laughs> Listen, I, I don't want this. I, I, I don't, I'm tired of consumeristic thought. Like, I don't want it in my life. It rears its ugly head. Like as funny as Maddox's story is to me, like I see myself in it. Uh, holding back, thinking God's holding out on me. Uh, but, but yeah, God, but you don't understand. No, I, I need this to make me comfortable and happy. Like I, I, I would say since I came to Christ, I've been on a journey seeking humility. 
And tonight, my friends, like, through God's word, an unbelievable opportunity for us to grow into a true understanding of where humility comes from. I don't want to live one more day consumed with myself. I want something more, and if you do as well, I just want to invite you into this journey tonight. So open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to finish chapter 3 tonight. Um, I hope and pray for each of you that, that just in being here right now, whether you're here for the first time or you've been here for years and years, that you're reminded of the, the awesome blessing of family. So in the last couple of weeks in 1 Corinthians, we've seen uh, imagery in terms of agriculture. Remember, Paul writes, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the growth. Last week, we saw the image of architecture, that we're to build uh, on the true foundation of Jesus, and we're to build with the right, with the right building materi- uh, material. Some of those building materials will be, will be burnt in the fire. They're not eternal. But other things built on the foundation of Christ will last forever. And so now we pick up here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, crazy beautiful text, verse 16. I'm serious, guys. Unbelievable word. Do you not know? He says this uh, six or seven times in his writings, does Paul. Do you not know, look at this, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? I think it's a fair question, actually. He asks it rhetorically, but I think it's a fair question. Do you not know? That you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If you're in Christ or a follower of Jesus, then maybe you know this in your mind. But my guess is the gravity of this statement hasn't yet to weigh on you. Because the gravity of this statement, I'm going to pull this statement out actually and put it in with maybe 10 or 15 others and say that this is one of the most gravity heavy, weight-filled statements in all the New Testament. The implications of this are tremendous. Why? Because God, in terms of the understanding of the temple, bears tremendous history along with tremendous future and for you and I, a tremendous present. Here's what Exodus chapter 25 says, just so we can get an understanding. As, As these Israelites were building the first wilderness tabernacle, here's what God says in verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary a tabernacle, a temple, that I may dwell in their midst. So the beginning of this understanding of the temple or the structure was that God wanted them to build one in the wilderness. They had just left uh, 400 years of slavery from Egypt. He wanted them to build a structure, and in that structure, God's presence would be. Well, just to remind you again, look at verse 16 yet one more time. Do you not know that you are God's temple, the church, and that, the, and that God's spirit dwells in you? Uh, you guys remember the old adage, right? Like the, 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 temp, the steeple and we're the people. You guys remember that? How that thing went? I, don't, I can't remember. I wasn't good in Sunday school. But you guys remember? Like he's the church, we're the people and we're the church. I don't know, something like that, right? Now, the point was the people are the church, and, and that is true. Because now God's spirit resides in the church, in his people, globally. Not just here, not brick and mortar. Brick and mortar has nothing to do with the church. The church is where his spirit resides. Are we together? So a little temple history to help the weight of the statement make more sense. Here's the old, ancient, first wilderness tabernacle. This was 
on the 1300s, 1400s-ish BC. This is the tabernacle that Moses is commanded to build. He empowers several others. When we studied Exodus, we saw the detail that went into making this. I mean, the hooks, the anchors, the wood that was used, the outer garments and coverings, like everything in this was down to a T so that God could reside in that. In Solomon's day, in the 900s, they get a bit of an upgrade, we could say. This is Solomon's temple. A lot of gold. Uh, this, I hope you understand, right? Like this is like a cut in half picture, okay? So we're like, that's an odd temple, right? Looks half done. No, like this is so we can see the inside. Okay, I drew this earlier with crayons. This is Solomon's temple, okay? Uh, it, is, it is destroyed in 586 by, that's right, if you've seen VeggieTales, King Nebuchadnezzar, okay? So King Nebuchadnezzar, remember Daniel and all that? He destroys the temple. Uh, later it's rebuilt in 515 B.C. by Zeru, uh, Zeru, Zeu Babel, okay, there's a few different pronunciations, and I probably just botched it, but work with me, all right? Then later in 19 or so BC, Herod comes along, destroys that one, dismantles it actually, and rebuilds this. This is a really good mock-up here of Herod's temple, okay? Uh, This lasts until 70 AD when the Romans uh, destroy it uh, in total and finally. Now, I've been to the Temple Mount in Israel. It's a really interesting structure. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of history where God would reside in the temple. That's where his presence would be known. The high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice on behalf of the people and encounter God's presence. And now that's in you. I'm pretty sure that the gravity of that statement has really yet to hit most of you. Uh, We still picture like the Holy Spirit residing in us, as I've talked about in the last few weeks, as some like, you know, spirit fairy Right, that's like you know Tinkerbell floating around in us. But it's more than that. What verse 16 says is that God is in us. And so the cool thing about the family, the cool thing about the church, the cool thing about the people of God is that we have this unbelievable connection with one another because we have God's spirit in us. And so when we talk and share in our relationship, we share in this koinonia, this fellowship that is unlike any other relationship. Because God is in us together. You guys know what I'm talking about? That's why it's so dangerous to date those who, who don't have that same spirit in them. And then we think that it's weird when we start struggling. Of course you're struggling. Because this is the fruit of what happens. We are God's temple. Here's what verse 17 adds as Paul goes on. Heavy words. If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him. This is in the Bible. I just want to make sure we see this. Right? Like some of you think this is just like superhero talk. This is in the Bible. Like it's right here. 1 Corinthians 3.17. If anyone destroys God's temple, which we now understand is the bride of Christ, the people of God, God's people, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy or sacred or set apart. And you are that temple. First of all, Can anyone really destroy the bride of Christ? Can anyone do it? The answer is no. Uh, So Paul is a little bit tongue-in-cheek here. He's a little bit figurative. But what he's saying is there are going to be those that will strive with great effort to break down the church, to break down the people of God. There will be wolves in sheep's clothing. There will be those who are not believers 
who make entrance into the confines of the people of God and who act like believers and then try to take people out one by one, snipe them out, as it were, halo their face off. You guys know what I'm saying, right? I I experience this all the time. Like Some of the most, uh, at first, like uh, when we were planting Matthias, I was young. I was 25 years old when we planted this church. You know, so there were some seasoned folks that came in the church and they wanted to influence the direction and they seemed so nice, and, you know, and they had all this, all this, you know, encouragement to say about me. But really what ended up started happening is all their conversations were bent towards changing the church to their ideas. Hey, Mark, don't you, don't you really think we should do this? Like this whole Wednesday thing? I don't know. We should, we should maybe move to Sunday. Or, or you know what, Mark? Like you're, you need to change this about yourself because you're not... And what ultimately revealed itself is they were, they were a wolf in sheep's clothing. Like they said, bah, but, but they weren't producing any wool. That works. I'm going to go with that, all right? Right? Write that down if you're taking notes. They said, bah, but they weren't producing wool, okay? That's a good analogy right there, right? Now, like this is, quite honestly, one of the most difficult things to discern. Are they with us or not? Uh, what um, Paul says is, look, it, it really, in some senses, at the end of the day, it uh, doesn't matter even at times whether you perceive if they're with you or not, just know and have the confidence that God will destroy them. Like, I know this isn't on the felt board in Sunday school. Like, this isn't like the, the verse that you memorize, right? If anyone steps to the church, God will take them out. But, but this, is, this is true. Now, it, now here and now, no. But if someone's anti-church, anti-bride of Christ, that means they're anti-Jesus. Are we together? And anyone who's ultimately anti-Jesus will spend an eternity away from Christ, destroyed. Are we together, right? So, so that's what he's pointing to. The severity of that doesn't just happen in the New Testament. It began way in the Old Testament. Check this out in Numbers. Not the lineage of Numbers, but the actual book of the Bible. Some of you are confused. Let's look at Numbers. No, words in Numbers. Here we go. Numbers 3. Verse 51, when the tabernacle is, is uh, to set out, the Levite shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levite shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, look at this, not encouraging, he shall be put to death. Again, this is in the Bible. Like this, is, this kind of stuff is rarely preached, rarely talked about. Oh, no, God is all mercy and grace. No, God is a wrathful God, the scripture says. If any outsider steps to the temple, and in other words, if any outsider even broaches the presence of God in and of himself, he will be put to death. Uh, we see later in Numbers 19, verse 20, if the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly. Since he has defiled the what? The what? The sanctuary of the Lord. Look, if you, if you mess with God's church, you're messing with his bride. And if you mess with his bride, you're messing with him because he's at the head of it. And if you mess with him, you're turning his back towards him and you will forever spend a uh, life without him. That's what Paul's saying. Now, what does this have to do with humility? Our next verse helps us understand. Verse 18. Let no one deceive himself, says Paul. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, thinks that he has something to offer God, thinks that somehow in his intelligence and articulation he can present something to God, if, if that's anyone among you, look at what Scripture says. Let him become a, what's the word? Come on. 
Let him become a fool that he may become wise. Now, we have, we have to sleuth this a little bit, right? Like, if anyone's wise in this age, let him become a fool that then he may become wise. So how can we become a fool and that prove itself uh, to be wisdom? Uh, so like I, I said earlier, we're on this like constant I am, pursuit, strive, many of you are. I know the scripture commands me to be humble and so I'm, I'm, I'm going to be humble. The foolery to the world is humility. Becoming a fool to the wisdom of the world is looking at the system of the world in the eye and saying, I am incapable. I cannot. I am not. But Christ in me. But Christ for me. But Christ because of his glory. And on and on and on. Like the foolery to the world is, I am nothing, he's everything. The foolery of the world is, I am in desperate need. And what the world's trying to portray is, like I'll figure it out. I'm going to get there. Like, I've, I've proven myself time and time again. Like I'll just, I'll finagle my way through it. Like I'll work hard, I'll do it again, I'll, I'll make it. Why? Because then all of you can say, look at what they've done. Look at their efforts. Look at their gifts. Ultimately, in our self-consumption, feeding from the faucet of our flesh from the buffet, like we want to be put on display. Why? Because in that, that the depths of our depravity is a tremendous amount of insecurity. Look, you, you see what I've done? You see who I am? Doesn't this make you happy? Doesn't this make you love me more? Doesn't this make you approve of me more? Let's, can we just have a moment of truth? What percentage of your life is done out of your insecurity so that somehow you win the approval of others around you? There's nothing in humility about that at all. It's self-consumption, self-exaltation. But folly, becoming a fool, is looking the world in the eye and saying, I can't. I can't. I'm done. It's over for me. I want Christ. I need him. I can't save myself. I can't discern myself. I can't give direction to myself. I need you. Can I ask you guys this? Is the world seeing a bunch of believers who are in desperate need of Jesus or is the world seeing Christians who found Christ and therefore have now found a new means of exalting themselves? Is the world seeing a consistent desperation from the people of God that he's the only source of life or is the world seeing a bunch of people who have now found a new way to bring focus to their gifts and to their life? It's dangerous. We must become fools so that we may be seen as wise. Verse 19 says, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, this comes from Job, He catches the wise 
in their craftiness. I love this. Jesus does this many times. Some of my favorite times in the Gospels is when Jesus is like in a room. People start thinking things, and the Scripture records knowing their thoughts. Wouldn't that be an awesome thing to, you know? Jesus is just sitting there reclining at the table, and they're like thinking stuff, the fair skanks. They're thinking stuff, right? He, he knows their thoughts, and then he just like, he just like finishes their sentence. Uh, we say it now like, you know, he's reading their mail. No, he like, he, he understands. Why? Like, he catches us in our craftiness, in our attempts at wisdom. He sees it all. And at the end of the day, completely meaningless, like our schemes to provide progress or self-exaltation. He's like, why are you even wasting your time? And then verse 20 brings it to a head. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. The Lord is not impressed. I think, I think some of you think that like God's up with a whiteboard and you're like, your name's written down right here, you know? And he's got a really cool color for your name, you know, whatever. It's like pink and fuchsia mixed or something. And he's, he's written your name up there. And like God's looking down, waiting on you to think of something awesome, you know? Oh my goodness, the humans made it to space, you know? And like, you know, like God's up there high-fiving the angels, and you know, they write space next to your name and like exclamation points. I can't believe they figured it out, right? They like, they made it to space, you know? Or uh, like, you, you name it, okay? In your context, it wouldn't certainly be space. Like, they figured out how to write in cursive, you know? Like, look at this. This is amazing, right? Or whatever. They've, they've now learned how to voice text, like this is blowing my mind, I'm God, but I'm mind blown, right? Like, no, the Lord isn't impressed. He's not impressed. He's not impressed with your wisdom, your thoughts, your schemes. He knows the thoughts of the wise. And those thoughts are futile, which means that we we can submit and rest in a new way. So I want to show you guys this. Here's the wisdom of the world. Who you are and what you have drives self-centeredness. So who you are, your identity, how many kids you got, how good of a parent you are, how good of a husband or wife you are, what college degree you have, what, what you know, were you a varsity uh, sport player in, in, in your sophomore year or just your junior and senior, you know, what chair do you sit in band, you know, were you a cheerleader, even in the world that counts, you know, like an on and on, okay, right, get that later, those cheerleaders, I don't, I don't have anything but love for you, okay, um, that's what the wisdom of the world says, and they applaud it, yes, who you are in terms of your identity in this world, the things that you have, it drives self-centeredness, and good for you, and good for you. Because the more self you have, the more self-esteem you have, the more focus on yourself you have, then the more self-actualized you will be, and the more self-actualized you'll be, then then the more blessed you're going to be and happy in life. Like, that's the wisdom of the world. If you don't see that, if you don't understand that, then open your eyes. That is what the world is plowing down our ears every single day. Who you are and what you have, it drives self-centeredness, and it's a good thing. Again, like, that's why, like, wins and losses now, and, like, you know, like, to get that to actually have, like, when I was in Little League, 
If you lost, you like ran 50 laps. You know what I'm saying? Now if you lose, you get like a circus, you know? Oh, we don't want little Johnny to have his feelings hurt because his team is horrible. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so guess what? You guys just lost 30 to nothing, but here comes some cotton candy. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> no, you know what? Little Johnny and the rest of his team should hit the truck. You know what I'm saying? Maybe they got a little bit more speed. Maybe they play better next time, you know? Like, that's what I grew up with. You know, again, like, when we had playgrounds when I was a kid, if you fell from the monkey bars, you died, okay? (laughs) Seriously. Now, if you fall from the monkey bars, it's like a bounce house. You know what I mean? Oh, wee, like, falling's fun. Failure's good, right? Again, it's it's all self-focused. It's all make everyone happy. It's all caress sin. That's the wisdom of the world. Unfortunately, that's where many of you find yourself. You, you've built on this foundation that is half the things that last and half the things that don't. And it's confusing you. It's confusing the world. The wisdom of the gospel says something else. Who you are and what you have drives selflessness. This is the, the point for me in this text where my heart started to beat fast because I've always longed to pursue humility and have thought of it as a pursuit. But all of a sudden in this text, I understand it to be something that I have. What has the scripture said about those in Christ? That they're what? That they're God's temple. That God's spirit resides in them. And within what I have in Christ, within who I am in Christ, All of those things drive me to selflessness. And that is the thing that the world must see. But we have a really, really hard time understanding that because we have no concept of what a selfless world would look like. Just imagine it, right? Like, imagine like trunk or treat with everyone being 100% selfless, you know? Like two families walk up to see the thing. Oh, no, your, your, your family goes first. You know, you guys go ahead. No, really, you guys. You guys go ahead, you know. And they, like, fight it out for half an hour. They're just standing there, you know. And then they finally, like, get the candy. And the kids are like, I don't even like candy here. You guys can have my candy. And the other kid's are like, no, please have my I mean, you know, like, they would just battle it out, right? Like, that's what it, right? Imagine, imagine traffic with a 100% selfless world. <laughs> Right? Like, imagine a four-way stop. No one would move, right? (laughs) And eventually, people would just get out and start, like, washing the windows of those around them, right? (laughs) You're right, we're here. We might as well do some work while we're at it, you know? Like, notice that bug there on your window, right? Imagine walking to a grocery store, you know? Like, you you go to open the door for someone, and that person's like, no, you know, and they kind of try to grab the door from you. you. You know, three hours later, you're still there at the door, you know? It's funny, and, and, and it seems um, distant, but it's pretty crazy um, that in a selfless world, like, that would be part of the reality. Well, we know for sure that there's always going to be selfishness. The scripture says that there are going to be those that say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And he'll say, I know you not. So we know for sure 
that there are going to be some that will be destroyed because they are distant from Christ. We know that for sure. Um, so then wh- where's our place in all of this? Well, selfless living can find its way not to be this distant thing that we're like a rabbit chasing a carrot. But it can become this thing. Humility can become this thing where we start to realize who we are and not what we have to attain. And I've always viewed humility as something I have to attain instead of something I already have. So I want to show you more of that. Look at this unbelievable text in verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Come on, say these, like, does anyone see this? Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. What is Paul trying, all things are mine. It's not computing, right? Because you're like, no, they're not. You know, I, I, I've been looking at, I've been looking at my, my girls, you know, the, her, her brooch, you know, the girls still wear brooches. I don't know. Like, like I, I'm looking at her, her necklace. I don't even know if, I, if girls wear those anymore, but whatever. Like, some of you are, are, have noticed articles of clothing in, in, like, the aisles that you're in. And you're like, man, if I could just have that, right, or those shoes or whatever, you know, those leggings, unfortunately, um, hate leggings. Um, anyway, like, you're like, well, our, all things aren't mine because those aren't mine. Like, she's wearing them, right? Or, or, or you were out back there and you were watching the little kids get candy, you know? And you were, like, starting to salivate, you know? You're like, oh, to be 11 again or 7 again, you know? And, and so you just went ahead and, as a kid, was, like, looking around. You just, like, grabbed that Hershey's, you know? All things don't seem to be yours. So what does this mean? Romans 8 tells us. Crazy text, awesome text. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The same kind of language that we've just seen here. God protects his church. If God is for us, it doesn't matter who steps against us. It doesn't matter who can be against us if God is for us. Look at this. He who did not spare, verse 32, his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously, say it with me, give us what? All things. Well, well, that doesn't mean I'm going to have every article of clothing or every house or every job that I want. What is he saying? He's saying, I have, you have all things in Christ. That's where all things reside. He's going to graciously give us all things, and what he's going to do in not sparing his son is give us all things through Jesus. Every facet of love is exactly what you need, and it will come through Christ. You will have all things. Every facet of grace that you so desperately need in the face of your sin, you will have in Christ. Every piece of discernment that will come through the Holy Spirit, you will have in Christ. We have all things. That's what he's saying. Why in the world, then, if you have all things in Christ, would you ever think about boasting in men? And man's wisdom and man's things. Why would you ever, in your pride, spend one day self-consuming? Because those things are no things. They get you nowhere. They lead you nowhere. They provide you nothing. Instead, he says there's a different way. Verse 22, beautiful. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas 
or the world or life or death or the present or the future. He says, all are yours. And then, my brothers and sisters, verse 23. Now, I imagine this being read aloud in the public setting as this letter arrived in Corinth. The letter arrives in Corinth, and I can imagine the crowd getting a little bit shifty because they're hearing this read probably all together, all in one setting. And you remember, Paul's been quite intrusive. Like, why are you boasting in men? Why are you saying Cephas or Peter or Paul? Like, why are you doing this? I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. Like, this whole thing is grace. So, so I can imagine people are a little bit squirming in their seats because they're, they're being convicted by the truth of the Scripture. And then all of a sudden it comes to this text and another reminder of how the foolishness that we have uh, seemingly to the world is everything in Christ. And then he, he says, writes, and someone reads, and people hear, and you are Christ. Listen, I don't know if there's anything else that I could say in my entire life that would mean more than just reading that truth. You're Christ. I can't make that feel real. I can't make that feel not like a fairy tale. I can't make that have the impact. But I've been on this journey to long to understand humility. And just in reading that again, I can't help but be humbled. I'm Christ. I'm not abandoned. I'm not rejected. I'm forgiven. I'm invested in. I'm cared for. I'm protected. I am Christ. And Christ is God's. And God sits on the throne. And that means what Scripture says that means I'm an heir to a beautiful inheritance, to an inheritance that is unfading. That's mine, and that's yours in Christ. We have all things. So then believers have two options. That either makes us more prideful in our self-righteousness, or it humbles us because we know how undeserving we are. Self-righteousness looks down on everyone else. Oh yeah? Well, we're in Christ. How about you? What's your problem? How come you cussing? How come you're having sex? How come you're getting drunk? Well, the same people making those judgments are going on on the weekend doing the exact same thing. It either breeds self-righteousness. And there was a season in my life where I desperately struggled with that. I told the story here a hundred times. Six of my high school friends, we all said we're not going to drink, we're not going to smoke, we're not going to have sex. That was our covenant. Weird covenant to make, but that's the covenant, right? No drinking, no smoking, no having sex. 
And one by one, I started to watch my friends drink, smoke, and have sex. And we were all at a party late, uh, late our senior year. And I'm watching my friends, like literally, one of my friends, true story, was in an outhouse, okay, pants down to his ankles, sitting in his vomit. And do you think when I opened that door, there was any ounce of compassion in my heart? No. I didn't know the difference. To drive me to prayer. But that's what self-righteousness does. It says, see, I told you. What's your problem? Forgetting that you were there yourself. Humility. He says, I am in Christ. And it's not because I have, in my wisdom, impressed God for him to say, you're mine. It's just because he's gracious. So let's end with this thought. Next slide. You are Christ, therefore, who you are and what you have in Christ drives selflessness. I find myself on my knees in humility, not striving to be humble and boasting in it, but in humility and brokenness and vulnerability because I'm a man in desperate need of what only God can provide, and he's provided it. I want to be that man. I'm tired of consuming. I've confessed a struggle before, like, I find a lot of comfort in food. I'm tired of that. Like, I'm tired of needing it. Food for me is, is, is like a means of celebration. So I, I do something good, and in my, in my mind, I deserve a tombstone pizza, you know. I, I serve, and so, I sh- you know, I get El Magwe, right, till the cows come home, right? Like, that's just my mentality. I hate that. It, it says that I need that. It makes me so self-centered. I long to be the man that when I'm sitting there after my kids go to bed and I'm sitting there at 8.30 and my beautiful, hot bride is sitting right there by me. It is so unbelievably easy in that moment to want my things and my comfort and my time and my ways. And when I don't get it, I throw a tantrum. And when I do get it, I'm not thankful. I don't want to be that man. I'm tired of that man. I don't want to be the man that when I come home and all my kids like run up to me and daddy's home and we're all high-fiving and it's a party, but my mind is elsewhere. I don't want to be that man. I, I don't want to be the man that walks in the grocery store with my head down. I, I, don't, I don't desire to live this life for myself. It's going to get me nowhere. It's gotten me nowhere. I desire, and maybe you do too, to believe, maybe again for the first time, that I am Christ. And just the truth of that, the reality of that, the statement of that doesn't cause a striving after humility. It puts me on my knees. And then, yes, the world sees selflessness. And listen, because it's foolishness to them, they want to know where it comes from. 
and then we get to share. No, you don't understand. I'm not being humble so that I can put my humility on the stage. My humility comes because God is who God is and he has made me who I am. I have all things. We're Christ. So the amazing thing is that God in his son Jesus provided this means for us to remember that. I don't know, I, I think tonight even for me and I pray for you, like this meal has taken on new meaning. Jesus in the essence of humility, he breaks the bread. And he says, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. And then he says some powerful words. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Because remembrance of me, the reality of me, the truth of me, is going, empowered by my spirit, it's going to drive selflessness because you're my temple. You, the church, are my mobile, moving ambassadorship to a lost and dying world. So take and eat. And then he holds up the cup in this upper room. And I can imagine the disciples looking on, wondering even what these words meant. And he said, this cup represents the blood, he says, of the new covenant. A word just like the temple that had tremendous history, but would now take on new meaning. He says, this cup represents the new covenant. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. And what happens is this meal begins this rhythm for the church global to come around the table and to celebrate being in Christ. I feel like tonight um, the level of pride and self-ambition, the level of self-centeredness and consumption the level of consumerism, maybe for some of you, is unbelievably high. But maybe tonight, just the reminder of you being in Christ will be the remembrance that will once again humble you in the face of a good God. This meal's for believers. So those in Christ, even tonight for the first time, Come and share in this meal.